0: We're talking about the, the the parts that you're made up of. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. You don't need to turn there, but I just... are Kind of our key scripture, I want to read it to you. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely or wholly and may your whole or entire spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice his prayer is that your spirit your soul, and your body be preserved blameless. I've read two books in the last... I don't want to get off on this unless the Spirit of God really wants us to, but I've read two books in the last month or so written by well-known authors, highly respected. You'd know some of... Some, most of you would know who they are. And, and I'm concerned about what I read in the books because basically they're saying once you're saved, you know, you can't really get in trouble. That Once you're saved, because your spirit's born of God, it can never be defiled. The problem is that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, avoid defilement of the spirit and of the soul. So it is possible for your soul to be defiled, for you to allow spirit to be defiled. It's possible. God gives you, it's like when they give you a new car, we don't give it to you, you pay for it. But when they hand you the keys, they don't even have keys on these little plugs they give you. When they give you whatever it is to start your new car, you know, and there's clean, there's no dents in it. But now it's what you do with it. You can take that thing out. In fact, my father had a friend who was a dentist down in Louisiana, bought a brand new Lincoln Continental. This was back in the late 60s when they were cars. They were made of metal. (laughs) He paid for it, got in it, Started it, drove it off the parking lot and got hit by a truck. He was all right, but the car was totaled. I'm not sure it got all the way off the, the grounds. Well you could go to that you could go to that, that um, the, the the junkyard and take a look at what was left of his continental and you cannot get any idea of what Lincoln Mercury intended for that to be by looking at it, can you? That wasn't Lincoln Mercury's fault, it was what he did with it when you're born again we'll talk more about that probably next week when you're born again god gives you the equipment then you have certain responsibilities now i say that because he says notice here he says may the god of peace himself sanctify you that means set you apart completely and may your spirit whole spirit soul and body be preserved blameless until the coming of our lord jesus christ He's saying, may all three parts of you be preserved, blameless. Well, we know we got to keep our body out of trouble, don't we? I hope you know that. Because if you just let your body go and you let it do what it wants to do, it wants to do things that are fun and taste good, but not necessarily things that are good for you. That's why when you're matured, you, part of maturing is learning to eat things that are good for you, not just things that you want to eat. you notice this principle? The more you eat something, the more you want it. So to me, a little bit of sugar doesn't do it. A little bit of sugar just wets my appetite for more sugar. And so we know our body can get in trouble. Well, our soul can get in trouble. We'll talk a little bit about that tonight. But apparently, your spirit can get in trouble. Because he says, may your whole spirit soul and body, be preserved blameless. So if your spirit can't get in trouble, then why would he have to preserve it blameless? Because there's no way it could get in trouble. And there are two very well-known popular Christian teachers that have written books lately that in essence say that you're, you're you, you know, you, you ultimately can't just, you just can't get in trouble. And they don't say go live the way you want to live, but that's an invitation to do that. I don't find my Bible teaching that. I'm not saying, you know, if you turn around, God's going to be mad at you and you're going to lose your salvation. I'm not talking about that. You can't lose it the way you can lose a pen. But there are too many scriptures that tell us to maintain. There are too many scriptures that tell us to endure. There are too many scriptures that tell us to continue to believe. There are too many scriptures that tell us to do what we're supposed to do till the end. So what got you saved is what you've got to continue to do. It's not earning anything. It's just like breathing doesn't earn life for you. Oh, that's good. I never saw this before. It's like breathing doesn't earn you life. Because the argument is, well, if you've got to do certain things to, to, to maintain your salvation, then isn't that being under the law? It is if that earns it for you. But your breath that you are given is a gift. The life that you have in you is a gift from God. But if you don't continue to breathe... If you don't continue to put food in your body, if you don't continue to do certain things you need to do, that gift you've given will perish because you didn't do what you needed to do with it. It's not earning something, it's maintaining something. Is everybody with me? Everybody understand that? I don't want to... If I've got to go spend the time... Because it's one of the most misunderstood issues in the body of Christ and one of the most important issues to understand in the body of Christ because historically, from almost the beginning of time, there's been a teaching out there that once you're saved, you're always saved. Oh, I said it. I went ahead and said it. (laughs) Somebody's going to get mad at me. But usually it's because we don't understand what's meant by that. God's not going to get mad at you and take something away from you because you make a mistake. You can't lose it the way you can lose it. To me, lose your salvation implies, oh my gosh, what did I do? I misplaced it. Or I did something wrong and God's mad at me. Let's put it this way. It takes a decision to get into the body of Christ. And it takes a decision of your will to get out. It's not a decision you come to quickly or make easily. It's not because you got mad and said something you shouldn't have said. But if you continue down a path of sin where you harden your heart to the Holy Spirit who is the one that convicts you and you continually say no to His conviction and you continue to intentionally sin in the face of His conviction, you will harden your heart to the point that when He gives you some ultimate warning, you cannot hear. Psalm 139 says, Where can I go from your spirit? If I go to the uttermost parts of the ocean, there you are there. If I go to the very gates of hell, you are there. And someone who's chosen to renounce Christ, the Spirit of God will go to the gates of hell pleading with Him. But if you've hardened your heart to Him to the point that over the years you've purposely, intentionally saying, no, I reject Christ, I don't want Christ, ultimately you can't hear His voice. Everybody okay still? All right. You don't get to that place easily. You don't get to that place overnight. But it is possible to get to that place. There are too many scriptures that say, you've tasted, and I don't want to get into these tonight. We're already in a way. You've tasted of the goodness of God and of the blessing of the Holy Spirit. I don't see how you can misinterpret that. And yet you turn and reject Christ. It's possible nobody in their sane mind does it. Sin will lead you into insanity where you'll do things you never intended to do. And the danger of that teaching is it lulls people into the sense, I can do whatever I want to do and it doesn't matter because God loves me. Yes, God loves you. He'll go to the door of hell yelling at you to don't go there. But you were given a will of your own. And once you're saved, you still have a will. And just as you chose to get in, you can choose to get out. But again you're not going to do that easily. And for people to do it, I remember hearing Brother Hagen say, I only know of a few people that I know of that have done it. In fact, Paul says, that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I think it is, I've taken this brother who's been sinning and you didn't deal with him, so I've turned him over, And some translations say, and you turn him over, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul will be preserved in the day of judgment. 1 Corinthians 11 says that we are to judge ourselves lest we be judged. And God will, if you don't judge yourself, God will judge you so that you're not, you're not condemned with the world. So that God takes steps ahead of time so that you're not facing that ultimate choice that he doesn't want you to face. But if you refuse to listen, ultimately, there's nothing God can do if you harden your heart to that point. Everybody still okay? Yes. Alright, alright, Let me make sure you're okay. The the, the truth will set us free. The truth will set us free. The truth will set us free. So I find that what often happens is you get people on two sides of the debate. One saying, you know, well, God loves us, and they take scriptures where Jesus said, you know, I've not lost anybody that God gave me. And I've got a list in the back of my Bible here of scriptures on both sides of the issue. Here it is. I've got... 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 scriptures that support eternal security. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 7, 30, 1, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, and still counting that make it clear that that's not so. Well, how can they both be true? because they're talking about two sides of a different issue. The sides that support eternal security talk about the side of God where God's not going to pull things back, and God won't. God's not going to manage you. That's it. I've had it with you. He won't pull it back. And those are scriptures that point on that side of God. But there's an entire other side, which is our side, and what we do in response, and they don't address those scriptures. And what happens, and I'm getting ahead of myself on first Sunday, not this Sunday, what happens is they take a doctrine, and now they've got to force scriptures to fit the doctrine. I literally read one writer who's very well known who says that first John one nine doesn't apply because he goes ahead and teaches now don't tell anybody outside the church, okay? <laughs> this is just us he goes on and says he says that that, that um uh, where was I, John? Come on, come on, back, get it back. He says that, he said, oh, yeah. He says, you know, because God saved us and loves us, we don't have to confess our sins. Of course, he's got a problem. What does he do with First John 1, 9? So basically he says it doesn't apply because the Old Testament says you need two or more scriptures for a truth to be established. And you've just taken a very clear scripture and ripped it out of the Bible. The other author I'm thinking about says that 1 John doesn't apply to the church, but all the way through he refers to brethren, my children. That's believers he's talking to. And here's the point. When you take a doctrine, I'm getting ahead of myself for a second. When you take a doctrine and you have to make that doctrine, you have to make the Bible fit that doctrine, you've got to start cutting things out, bending things to fit your doctrine, instead of letting the Word of God teach you what God is about. I am not ashamed to stand before you and tell you there's some things I don't understand. I'm growing in my understanding because i'm not going to make something fit my pet doctrine i don't want pet doctrines i want to know the truth Amen. and if it means something i've taught i discover was wrong then i trust and hope i'll have the integrity to stand before you and say i was wrong i now understand something else is the truth because i'm not going to force this word to be something that i want it to be because it's dangerous James chapter 3, I think verse 1, is, gives a warning to teachers. Don't, don't seek to be a teacher because there's a greater judgment or condemnation. Why? Because what you think affects people's lives. And I take that very seriously. Anyway, how did we get off on that subject? See, you pulled me off onto that. <laughs> oh, your entire spirit, soul, and body be preserved Blameless. Well, I got that out of my system. I feel a little better now. All right. So we see here, and this is what we're talking about, that it's important to understand that, and this is another reason why, that you are made up of three different parts, your spirit, your soul, and your body. We've talked about the fact that, that you're part, two, two parts of you come from a realm of existence which are the opposite of each other. You have, on the one hand, the spirit realm, and obviously, your spirit comes from that realm. And that's the eternal realm. That's the realm that God lives in. God is spirit. 1 John chapter 4. God, er, John chapter 4. God is spirit. Therefore, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. As, as a consequence of the fact that he's a spirit, we can only communicate with him spirit to spirit because he is a spirit. And that's his realm of existence. We saw that the natural material realm came out of the, the spirit realm of existence. So things exist, first of all, in the spirit realm, and then they're brought into the material realm. And we have saw that the material realm, which is the realm our body comes from, is temporary. It's short-lived. It's subject to change. It's always it's in the process of dying and decaying. It's under a curse. So they're the opposite of each other. But the most important thing to see in our study here is that the material realm is a, is a realm that's detected by one or more of your five senses. And that's going to become important to us tonight. So if I can see it, feel it, taste it, taste it, or hear it, then it's of this natural material realm. So we've talked about this platform, this pulpit, is of the material realm because you can hear me hitting it, I can feel it, if I wanted to, I could taste it, and you can, you know, so it's our five senses, so we know what realm this is. The spirit realm is anything that does exist, and that's important, that you cannot detect with your five senses. Now, you cannot detect a unicorn with your five senses. I don't care how much cute songs they have. You cannot detect a unicorn with your five senses, but that doesn't mean it's a spirit being. Why? Because it doesn't exist. So just because you can't detect it with your five senses doesn't mean it's a sp- It has to exist and you can't detect it with your five senses. Have I, everybody still with me? Alright, so we're talking about realms of existence, something that's real. In fact, we saw that the spirit realm is more real than this material realm. Why? Because that's what was there first, and it's not changing. It's eternal. This natural material realm is temporary. It's in the process of decay. And they, these two realms of existence cannot naturally have contact with one another. So would you put that first slide up, number seven? All right, this slide shows you what we've been talking about. On the left side, you see the spirit realm. Don't get hung up on the legal and vital. The legal means that it's God's side. The vital means it's our side. The spirit is the real you. It's your real nature. It's the source of your life, and it's eternal. So one part of you, your spirit, is of the spirit realm. Therefore, it's real. It's the real you. It's your nature and it is a source of your life, and it is eternal. The other part of you that you're familiar with is on the right side, that's your body. That comes from what realm? The material realm. And that is the realm of the flesh. It's it's your earth suit, it's the container for your spirit. We talked about that last time. Your body is the container for your spirit. Without a body, your spirit cannot remain here. We'll see that more clearly tonight. That's why when somebody dies, what happens is their body quits functioning, but what it causes it to die is the spirit leaves it. The Bible says in 1 Kings 129 that, 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 that we, when the spirit leaves, our body dies. It says about Jesus on the cross that he released his spirit. That's how he died. Nobody killed him. He released his spirit and his body died. So you're in Psalm 104, verse 29. Take away the spirit and we die. Basically is the principle. All right. So here we got a basic problem though. The problem is this. The real you is your spirit. And it's on the inside of you. It comes from the realm that God lives in. In fact, when you're born again it comes out of god born again means a second time but it also means from above first john chapter 1 says to them who believe in christ he gave them the right to become a child of god born of god the word of there is ek ek in greek which means out of we have four children They were born out of us, literally out of Anita. But they have our DNA. So they were out, not just out of her womb, but their DNA, their their roadmap for their design came out of us. And therefore, they're called our children. When you come to Christ, you become a child of God. You are born out of him, just like Matthew and Mark and Emily and Christopher are born out of us. And because they're born out of us, they have our physical nature embedded in them. In the same way, your spirit being born out of God has the nature of your spiritual father in it. That's the left side. And that's the part of you that's on the inside of you. That's where the life of God is. Not only that, the Bible says, just to seal the deal, literally, God takes His own spirit once you're born again, and fuses His Spirit with your spirit. We'll see later on, now God has embedded in you a perfect method of communicating with Him. His Spirit to your spirit fused together. The Bible says you were joined to Christ. Does that mean we're Siamese twins with Him? You know, in our arm, what part of you was joined to him? It wasn't your arm, it wasn't your leg, your head, your feet. It was your spirit and his spirit fused and joined together, makes you one with him, one spirit with him. That's exciting. When I teach this in New, in, in, in new Memory, when I teach this in Renewing the Mind course, we go back and spend the first two hours going through Ephesians chapter 1 talking about what this means for you. That's what Ephesians 1 is all about. It's describing to you what happened when God put His birth, His nature in you and then fused His Spirit with you. It talks about all that comes to you as a result of that. And that's exciting and wonderful. You ought to be more excited. The problem, is then how come we're not living it out and enjoying it? That's the difference between the legal and the vital. The legal is what God's done. He's put it in you. All of it. Now. The kingdom of God is in you now. I shared with you a few weeks ago on a Sunday when we ended that Sunday service about the connect groups and we all held hands and sang to one another and we had wonderful things happening, people crying and melting and we even had people that didn't speak the language crying because they felt so loved and they didn't know what was being said. We saw Barry, we saw the love of God pour out in here and then God spoke to me He says, that was in there all the time. It's not like some cloud dropped down out of heaven, a love cloud, We didn't have, like at Disney, these little things shooting out under your seats, and, oh, love is in the love potion number nine. We just squirt that around. No, it came out of you. That same love is in you right now, sitting in your blue chair with three or four blue chairs between you and the next person. I'm not looking at anybody right now. I shouldn't have said that. Forgive me. Let's go back to once saved, always saved then how come? (laughs) How come that victory, how come that glory, how come that love, how come that wisdom, how come all that God is that's in me right now, how come I'm not experiencing all that in my life? Because it's all bottled up on the left-hand side. Because the part of you that I'm seeing, the part of you that your mother-in-law sees, the part of you that your boss sees, the part of you that you see, the part of you you spend so much time seeing is the left-hand side, the body side. Now, what realm does that come from? This material realm. Now, here's the problem. You've got all of this of God bottled up inside of you. And he wants to come out. And he wants to have his way. And he wants to reveal himself and he wants to perform miracles. But he can't get through the outside because look at the line in the middle. By the very nature of the spirit realm and the material realm, they have no contact with each other. Because the material realm cannot detect the spirit realm because the material realm has to use one of its five senses. It either can tell it's there because it sees it, smells it, tastes it, hears it, or touches it. And I've used this example. The Bible says that we have at least, each of us, a guardian angel. So forever, how many people in here, 300 and so people in here this evening, there are at least 300 angels in the room, and naturally you can't see them. Now, when somebody sees something like that, that's called supernatural, or above the natural, or beyond the natural, but in the natural, normal course of things, which is where we all live, Your body can't detect that realm. And yet, living inside of you is the very life of God, but it's in that other realm that your senses can't detect. Did God just make a mistake? Did God just, oh my goodness, or oh my me? (laughs) I left something out. No wonder this isn't working. I've put me inside of them, but I forgot that they can't detect me. No, he didn't do that. Because there's a third part of us called your soul. Show me the next slide. Your soul is the bridge between your body and your spirit. Your soul is able to connect with and be in contact with your spirit and with your body at the same time. It's the part of you that God designed and gave to you to bridge that communication gap. And this is why your soul is so important. The battle that goes on in you does not go on in your spirit. It doesn't even go on in your flesh. Your flesh is lost. It's it's a goner. You can train it to do some things. Hebrews chapter 6 or 5 at the end of chapter 5 says you can even train it so that your senses can learn the difference between good and evil. It can learn the difference, but it still wants to do evil. If you leave your flesh alone for long enough, it will get you in trouble. I don't care how saved you are. It will get you in trouble. So you know where it's headed. Your spirit, on its own, is headed towards God. So where's the battle? The battle is in your soul. Now let's talk about your soul for a minute. What is it? It's made up of three parts. Your mind your will, and your emotions. It's interesting, each time we take something apart, it seems as if it's got three parts to it, kind of like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your soul is basically your personality. It's the part of you that you're most aware of, unless you've got an itch somewhere right now. It's the part of you that thinks. It's the part of you that's sitting there saying, when's this going to end? It's the part of you thinking about tomorrow, what you're going to eat when you get home. It's the part of you that, you know, is happy or sad. It's the part of you that your mind, your will, and your emotions. Your emotions you're familiar with. The emotions are an important part of us. Your emotions are to your soul like your taste buds are to your body. It helps you to enjoy and experience life. God does not want us to go through life you know, in black and white, grayscale, without any color or or zazz or pizzazz. I mean, he made this world beautiful. What we see right now is nothing compared to the way God made it because it's been under a curse for thousands of years. God only makes beautiful things. God only makes beautiful things, and he makes them for us to enjoy. If you read Genesis carefully, God made the Garden of Eden, brought the man in, and he commanded him to enjoy it. He wanted God, to, he wanted his man to enjoy it. So he gave us senses so that we can enjoy things. Now, if you ever have a cold where your nose is cut off, you know, and you, you, you go to eat your, lunch, your dinner or your lunch and you just don't taste anything, you know, it's me. <laughs> and you can't taste it just so you don't enjoy it. See, God put our nose over our mouth so we could smell what's going in there. We need to smell more some of what goes in there and say, "I put and put and put, shouldn't put that in there.". <laughs> so your taste buds for your app, for your body, are, 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 are designed so that you can obviously discern something's good from evil, but also enjoy, you know, in, I better not go there too far. <laughs> enjoy your food. God wants you to enjoy it. But He doesn't want you to use your taste buds to decide what you're going to eat. That's called being a child. You let a two-year-old go to a buffet table. You know which end they're going to go to. They're going to go to the dessert end because they want to make sure they get enough of that end before they have to eat the stuff that's good for them. I know none of you would ever do that. A two-year-old decides what to eat based on how it tastes. A mature adult decides what to eat based on how good it is for them. Don't we? I say, yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> We'd never just eat something because it tastes good when we know it's not good for us. We always eat things that we know are good for us and we enjoy the taste of those, that spinach and the Brussels sprouts and the cabbage or whatever. You know, we enjoy that because we know it's good for us. That's what maturity is. The point is this, God gave us something to enjoy but not control us. In the same way He gave us emotions. And the purpose of those emotions is so we can be alive and experience life and enjoy life and have passion. God is a God of passion and desire and, 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 and expressive of his passion. I mean, it's, it's, read the Song of Solomon. It's in the Bible. The desire of this man for his wife. For his wife. I mean, he's really specific. <laughs> and it is talking about marital desire. It also talks about God's desire for Israel, his passion for Israel. But the same way... Our taste buds are not designed, our, 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 our tastes are not designed to determine what we eat. Our emotions are not designed for governing our lives. Their, enjoy, their, their purpose is to help us enjoy our life, not govern our decisions. And this is where most Christians are. They make their decisions of what they're to do based on what feels good, what I want to do what feels right, what I like or don't like. And that's like a child deciding what he's going to eat based on what it tastes like. So God gave it to us, so that's our emotions. Then we have our mind, and that's the part of you that's rational or irrational, but it thinks. We all think in patterns, and our minds are operating all the time. They just don't all think the same way. And every married man says, amen. Amen. (laughs) And now, sandwiched between your emotions and your mind, is your will. The part of you that decides what you're going to do. The part of you that says yes to God or no to God. The part of you that says, I'm going to eat that hot fudge sundae, even though I know it's not good for me, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to make this statement. You may understand it or you may not. You may get mad at me, but that's okay. It's the truth. No one can make you do something you don't want to do. No one can make you do something you don't want to do unless they physically tie you up and force you to do it. But then you're not doing it. No one makes you feel the way you feel. Your parents don't. Your kids don't. Your spouse doesn't. They do things or say things, and then you choose how you're going to respond. Genesis chapter 1, I think it's verse 27, and God made man in His image. That doesn't necessarily mean that God's got two ears, two eyes, two nostrils, a mouth, hands, and feet. It may. But what I believe it clearly means is God made man in His image. He's the only creature God made that He gave a will to that God would follow. God gave you your will, your right to make a decision. And God honors that right that He gave you to the extent that He'll let you exercise the right He gave you in violation of what He wants you to do. He won't make you do something against your will. He'll influence you. He'll prod at you. He'll put stumbling blocks in front of you. He will try to cope, but he will not violate your will. If God can't make you do what you don't want to do, why do you think your wife can or your husband can? The reason we like that thinking is it takes the responsibility off of us, it's the basis of modern psychology. Well, not so much today, but Freudian psychology and all that. Well, I'm the way that I am because of how I was treated as a child, or the way I was in my mother's womb, as if I had nothing to do with that. I remember growing up, I had a problem because I knew some people that overcame some, some incredible handicaps. I know the story of a girl, a young girl, who was growing up in, in wartime in Vietnam. And the Viet Cong came into her village, and she was about four or five years old lined all the adults up, including her parents, and shot them right in front of her, and then left. So in one moment's time, every adult in her village is gone, including her parents, and she watched them shot in front of her eyes. And you talk about a traumatic event in a child's life, that's about as traumatic as you can get. Somehow the G.I.s came in and they took them out, and I don't remember the whole story, but she ended up over here, and I, her, I, somebody I've known in my past saw, helped this child get started. And this child, I don't know about today, but when I heard the story, is a healthy, functioning medical doctor. It had, it worked her way through college, college medical school, is well-adjusted and normal, has a happy family today. And if anybody had an excuse to have something go wrong, She just chose, she chose not to be limited by what happened in her past. There are some of you tonight that your past is controlling your future when it has no power over your future. Only you have the power now over your future by the decisions you make with your will now paul says forgetting those things that lie behind and he had some things to forget before he was saved he was responsible for the death of thousands of christians imagine going to sleep at night and seeing their faces go in front of your mind and other things forgetting those things that lie behind how he was mistreated See, if God's not our God, then we may have an excuse. But when God becomes our God, and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, where's our excuse? Where's our excuse? But it all comes down to our will. So your soul is made up of your mind, your will, and your emotions. Now, here's what's happening. The spirit realm, because of its very nature cannot express itself in this material, natural realm unless it has a body in some way. Because you can't see the spirits. But spirits, good or bad, desire to express themselves. Let me give you some background here. Romans chapter 12. You're learning anything tonight? All right, this is kind of like class tonight. Verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Who presents my body? I present my body. God doesn't present it. The Holy Spirit doesn't present it. I, as an act of my will, present my body, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is my reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or demonstrate what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The good and acceptable and perfect will of God is in you right now. The devil could not stop you from being saved. Once you decided to receive Christ, all of hell could not stop you. Because if they would have, if they could have, they certainly would have stopped that. So you know what kind of power Satan has over you against your will. None. Because if he couldn't stop that, he can't stop anything else you decide to do for God. But he knows how to talk you into getting you use your will Against yourself, because he talks to your flesh, which wants to side with him. Well, you know, I'm too tired to get up and pray. It's been a hard day, you know, you know, you know, I've done, I've been faithful in church the last three Sundays, you know, maybe I ought to take this one off. Your flesh wants to hear that. So it's going to side with him. But look at this. God says that you may, that you are to renew what? Your mind. That's part of your soul. You are to train your mind to begin to think like God thinks. And what part of you is God? Your spirit. You're to train your mind based on God's word so that your mind begins to think along the same lines that his spirit inside of you thinks. So that he can get your mind to agree with what your spirit wants to do because your spirit wants to obey God. So he wants your mind to learn how to think in line with your spirit Because that way God can prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Prove it to whom? To you? No. To prove it to those around you who don't know what his will is until they see his will acted out in your life. Satan could not stop you from getting saved but once, he's got, once you've gotten saved his next line of defense is to keep the kingdom of God that's in you from ever coming out. Because as long as he can keep it bottled up in you it won't affect anybody else. But once that kingdom of God begins to grow inside of you and the spirit of God begins to manifest inside of you and God is now able to express himself through you, now the spirit of God and the kingdom of God can begin to prove to other people what his will is like. And that threatens the devil at his core. So he rages all of his attack against your body And against your mind, so that you won't think along the lines with your spirit. So that your mind will agree with your flesh and not with your spirit. And so Paul's saying here, here's what's at stake in renewing your mind. It's not this, that just that you feel blessed. It's not that just God is able to give you peace. There's souls, lives at stake with whether we renew our mind to the word of God and to the spirit of God because God, there is a great courtroom out there. I can't take you the time today, but back in Ephesians chapter two, it says that we all of this is to prove to spiritual forces in heavenly places what the love and mercy of God is like. And you and I are, oh, isn't the Bible saying, we are his witnesses in this trial to prove and demonstrate what God's love is like, what God's mercy is like, so that when they laugh at you, make fun at you at work, and your flesh wants to rise up and get back at them, but your mind now has been renewed to what Jesus says in Matthew 5 and 6, where he says, pray for those who despitefully use you. And now instead of reacting, this mind says, oh, wait a minute, God's word says something about that. The spirit of God inside of you now brings that scripture back to you. And the two of you agree. And now instead of reacting in your flesh what they see, you begin to respond out of your spirit. And God can express himself in your workplace through your body that they can see. But there's another party in this courtroom. Turn with me to, Matthew, to Mark chapter 5. A little quickly. You didn't know anatomy could be so exciting, did you? <laughs> I'll have to shorten this down. This is a story where Jesus went into Gadara. And there's a madman there. And they can't even keep him chained in shackles and chains. He pulls his clothes off. He pulls the chains apart. And he does this day and night. In the mountains, verse 5, said in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, verse 6, he ran and worshipped him and cried out with a loud voice, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I implore you by God. Notice the demons know who he is. And they'll try to false worship him. I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to them, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then Jesus said, What is your name? And he answered and said, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now notice verse 10. And he, the head demon, begged Jesus earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us what? Into the swine that we may Enter them. In other words, don't leave us hanging out there without somebody. Now go with me over to Luke chapter 11. Verse 24. Now, Jesus has just finished casting demons out. And he gets criticized by saying, well, that can't be God. It must be the Beelzebub or the father of demons is giving him the power to do this. And Jesus said, isn't that strange? That means there's a, his house is divided against itself, so it won't last. And then he gives this lesson in verse 24. When an unclean spirit, that's this left side, goes out of a man, that's the right side. He goes into dry places, that's the spiritual atmosphere around this earth seeking a place of rest, and finding none. Now, place of rest doesn't mean so he can take a nap. He needs some body, physical body, to dwell in, in order to express himself, or his father's will, Satan. Finding none, he says, well, I got an idea. Let's go back to that body we just came out of. And when He comes, He finds it swept and put in order. In other words, the demons are out, but you never put the Spirit of God in. So Jesus is teaching it's not enough to cast demons out, you've got to deposit the life of God inside, otherwise is it the, it's an empty house. And the demons will come back in with more than were in there before. The whole point I want to see here is just as the Spirit of God needs your body to express itself in this earth, in the same way Satan needs a body to express himself. He can't possess your body because you're a Christian, but he can try to influence it. He can't influence you from the inside because the Spirit of God dwells inside. But if he can get your soul, your mind, to be so closed to the Spirit and insensitive to the Spirit inside of you, he'll talk to you through your body. Doesn't Ephesians chapter 6 say, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood? That body that's upsetting you so much at work, or maybe in your bedroom sleeping next to you. That person that's got you so ticked off, and you want to give them that piece of your mind you can't afford to give up. <laughs> Paul is saying recognize, wake up, and realize it's not that person, their spirits trying to express themselves through that person to get at you. And both the spirit of God and the spirit of Satan, in order to do that, have to be able to get somehow into your mind because what they've got to get at and what the battle's for is your will. The battlefield is the mind. But the goal of the battle isn't for your mind, It's for your will. That's what they're after. God wants your will submitted to His Spirit inside of you so that He can express Himself and all that He is and His love and His glory and His grace and His power and His demonstration through your body. And on the other hand, Satan, through his demonic forces, wants to go through your flesh to your mind to get at your will so you won't do what the Spirit of God says. Instead, you'll do what He says. Can you begin to see why it's important to understand your three parts and what their role is?